Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henrik is the executive director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really happy to have Edwin Hill on today's podcast. Edwin's critically acclaimed crime novels include Watcher, The Missing Ones, and Little Comfort. He's been nominated for Edgar and Agatha Awards, featured in Us Magazine, and received star reviews in Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Library Journal. And he was recognized as one of six crime writers to watch in Mystery Scene Magazine. He lives in Rosendale, Massachusetts with his partner, Michael, and his favorite reviewer, their lab, Edith Ann, who likes to, <laughs> who likes his first drafts enough to eat them. Welcome, Edwin. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me today. I think having um, somebody to eat those first drafts may be one of the best pieces of writing advice you can uh, you can have. Oh, well, you can just feed them right into the shredder too. That that works as well. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your journey as a writer, um, and you know when you decided. What was the moment in your life where you said, "I'm I want to write a book." Oh gosh, that's uh, that's such an interesting question because I, I sort of told myself that a number of times um, and had a lot of false starts. But I would say that the very first time that I w- decided I wanted to be a writer was when I was maybe ten or eleven, maybe uh, ten or eleven. My family, my parents used to take us on these month-long family camping trips across the United States. We drove in a yellow Bronco. And of course, I always brought a lot of reading material with me. And so one year, I think it was when I was 10 going on 11, uh, we were outside of Mount Rushmore in South Dakota, and we stopped at a gas station. And I was at that age where I was sort of in, but this was like before, I'm like old enough that this is before there was really YA. Um, And I'm also old enough that this was a time when you could buy paperback books uh, at gas stations off of those old wire racks. And so I didn't quite know what I I wanted to read anymore because I had sort of graduated out of children's literature and I was looking for something else. And so we went to the gas station. My parents uh, bought me a copy of Agatha Christie's um, uh, The Seven Dials Mystery. Um, Mm -hmm. which is one of her earlier mysteries. It's set, I think it's like maybe her fifth or sixth novel. It's set in the 20s. It's set at a manor house. It has a character named Bundle. And um, I just loved every single thing about that novel. I loved how the clues work together. I loved the characters. I loved the language. Um, I loved the setting of of England. Um, I just really responded to it in every way. Um, And so I read it in maybe a day or whatever, sitting in the back of that Bronco. And um, then when I got back to my hometown, I went to the library and I read all of the Agatha Christie novels that were available at the library. They probably had 30 or 40 of them. And that took me, you know, the next year or two to do that. And from then on, so I finished that book, though, the first book, and I thought, this is exactly what I want to do with the rest of my life. It only took me about 30 years to teach myself how to do it and many false starts. So let's talk about that. So was it, you know, Agatha Christie was sort of your gateway um, and you 
And that book is is interesting because that's not one of her more traditional um, mysteries per se. It's it's got a little espionage um, action going on, but it's a it's a fun novel. Um, when you say it took you thirty years to learn, can we talk about what that looks like? And was it always going to be crime fiction that you wrote, or did you have other thoughts along the way? Yeah, mostly crime fiction with a few stops in uh, literary fiction as well. But I always like to write something uh, with a crime at, uh, as the backbone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I read, I, I continued to read Agatha Christie. And then in high school, I got into more classic literature. So like what you read in high school. So lots of Brontes and um, Thomas Hardy's and stuff like that. Um and which is so funny to think, I, f- I feel like I'm too dumb to read those types of book books now. But when I was a teenager, I would just take them out of the library and read them on my own. Um, so anyway, uh, so I really liked that. And then I went to college and I was a literature major. Um, but in college, I had another uh, discovery. And that was I would I would leave campus and I would go to the Russell Library, which was in Middletown, Connecticut. And I discovered Sue Grafton. And she was on about, she was probably on J or so, if you want to figure out how old I am. Um, uh, but so I read A through J very quickly when I was, should have been reading my when I should have been reading for my classes. <laughs> uh, I would go down and I read those books, and again I kind of fell in love with mysteries again. And I th- that was my first introduction to sort sort of a modern mystery writer. Um, so I read through those, and that sort of and and I discovered that toward the end of college too. So after I graduated, I kind of continued with contemporary. Um, uh, crime writers. And I, I really enjoyed reading those. And it sort of re-engaged my love with the crime novel. And so in my 20s, I lived out in California in my 20s. Um, I That's when I had a lot of my false starts. I would try and write something and I just couldn't get the, I couldn't get the pieces together. I couldn't, I couldn't sort of work my, like bash my way through the middle of the novel. And so I had false starts. I stopped writing things, stopped writing many things. And then at the end of, um, the 2000s. I worked in the uh, the dot com business. Boom, dot com boom. If you remember uh-huh. that, uh, that all came crashing down, of course, in the year 2000. And I decided I needed to find something else to do. And so I moved back to Boston, where I grew up, and I went to Emerson College uh, for an MFA in creative writing. And at the time, I really, um, I really wanted to write basically what I would describe as a literary mystery. So a very character-driven uh, mystery novel. Um, there were a few of them out there, and um, I kind of used them as models. Um, I think that uh, Margaret Atwood is a really good model for this. She, you know, she, she does... She does. She has genre at the backbone of many of her novels, and yet they're very they're so character driven at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all of her novels, but many of her novels. Um, so when I, I went through that program, and I really enjoyed it, I had a great time in that program, and I finished a novel. Wow! Um, so I got it, and I, I, I graduated. I had no money left, of course, but I graduated from Emerson. I had this novel. Um, and it was what I had sort of set out to do, this character-based mystery novel. Um, and I set about doing what you do when you finish a novel. You find an agent. And lo and behold, I found an agent really quickly. Like, ah. And um, I really thought I had ma- had it made. Um, and the agent was big and fancy in New York, you know, like everything you want in an agent. And so we shot that novel around everywhere, and it got rejected everywhere. 
And it was very discouraging. And I kind of lost my mojo at that point. And I was mm-hmm. completely out broke. I was totally out of money. And I needed to focus on have, uh, building a new career. So I went into publishing. I got a job in college textbook publishing, which is absolutely not trade publishing. It's a very different industry, but it was a terrific industry to be in. Um, I got a job there. I worked very hard. I I worked my way up the food chain for the next 20 years and uh, was ultimately the editorial director, the vice president editorial director. Um, But I still had this little itch in the back of my mind, where this little itch where I wanted to, where I still wanted to write. Um, Mm -hmm. So I had a cup again i had a couple of false starts so you you've been working in publishing which it, again textbook publishing very different for a long time but you start to get this idea that you want to start writing again was that an easy journey was that like uh, again you had to sort of relearn how those gears worked yeah it was kind of a mixture of all of those things i'd been re- i have to say not having that first novel having that first novel not sell really burned me. Um, and so I think one of the first things I had to do was just get emotionally engaged in, in the idea of being a writer again. And like writing is about like anything that, that is hard to do. You, you sometimes have to fail and fall down and pick yourself up. And so a couple things happened that really helped me get back into writing. It was toward the end of the 2000, the 2000. So around 2008, 2009, um, Three things really helped me. One was that there was a big case here in Boston, um, the Clark Rockefeller case, uh, that made national headlines. But for people who don't remember, Clark Rockefeller was this guy who pretended to be a member of the Rockefeller clan. Um, He married this very wealthy woman. They lived on Beacon Hill. They had a child together. Beacon Hill is a very Tony section of Boston. Um, and when, of course, he was not a member of the Rockefeller clan. And when his story started to unravel, he went on the run with his daughter. And that's, that's when the story sort of became national headlines. And so he was on the run for about a week. And during that week, the uh, feds discovered that he was actually a German national. And he had murdered this couple in um, California when he was pretending to be someone else and um, buried them in their backyard. And they discovered those bodies. And like any good, you know, uh, new crime writer, like you read a story like that and you think I could do something with that. So that was the <laughs> first thing. Um, and so I sat down at my computer at home and I wrote this scene. It was maybe two pages long, three pages long. And it was about this guy. His name was Sam and he was on Beacon Hill and he, he went to a bar and he was leaving Boston because he had done something to someone. I didn't know who the someone was. I didn't know what the something was, but I liked the language of the piece. I liked Sam as a character. I didn't even know Sam's last name, but, um, mm-hmm. and so I would periodically like, so I wrote this scene. It was like three pages long and I would like rearrange sentences or I'd add like a paragraph and then delete the paragraph. And then I just close my computer and I leave it alone. So that was step one. But at least I had something on the computer. Yeah. Let's put it that way. I had a character I liked. So step two was I read a book called uh, Case Histories by Kate Atkinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kate Atkinson writes this series. It's the Jackson Brody series. And I love this series. And I love that book. And what I love about them is that they are literary mysteries. They are character-driven mysteries, which is exactly what I was trying to do with my first novel. Um, So I read Kate Atkinson, who's a brilliant writer, and I thought, well, she did exactly what I was trying to do, so surely I can do what I was trying to do. That was step two. Then the really lucky piece, or not lucky, it just was life happened. Um, I got a new job. So I'd been working at Houghton Mifflin, which is a publisher based here in Boston, um, and I got a job at Macmillan. 
and I negotiated a month off in between. Um, so I got the month of October of 2010 off. And I always heard of this thing called NaNoWriMo, where you try to write a month, uh, a yeah. novel in one month. Um, yeah. NaNoWriMo, of course, takes place in November, not in October. But I knew the principles of what uh, how NaNoWriMo worked, and um, I could just manage myself. So I had always asked myself, what would I do with a month off? I could go to France. I could travel. I could do whatever I wanted. But I, I, I thought to myself, this is your chance to try being a writer, and you're not going to have another month off. So I, every day I wrote 1,666 1, 1, words, and at mm-hmm. the end of the month I had a terrible, terrible first draft um, that uh, I could shape into something. So it took me about two, three years to shape that into a novel. Again, I'm not taking myself completely seriously at this point because I'm still burned from my first novel. But after mm-hmm. those three years, I suddenly was like, there was like, I don't even know what day it was, but one day I thought to myself, I think maybe I have something here. I don't know. And um, I started to really take myself a little more seriously. And then I finished and it was time to start getting an agent again. So let's talk about that, you know, the, the leap of faith to start this other novel after you'd had disappointment that a lot of people have that disappointment of, of their first novel being out on submission and, and nobody uh, nobody taking it. But, you know, you had gotten your MFA. You knew what you were doing. Did, did this new novel give you more joy to write? Or, or was it did because you weren't putting the pressure on yourself, did you sort of feel a little bit more free? Or were you always worried about the agent publishing part? Um, I think it was a little bit of both of those things. So again, at first I wasn't, I wasn't fully, I wasn't so fully committed that, um, I was reserving a little bit of my emotional self so that I wasn't so fully committed. Um, but you know, it was still something that I had always dreamed of doing. So there was that as well. Um, I had talked, (laughs) this is a little, little silly thing, but when I was writing my first novel, the one that didn't sell, I talked about it a lot. I mean, I was like, if if I was talking to anyone, I was talking about that novel. With my second novel, I was very reserved about who I talked to. And I think that was a big, huge difference between between the two of the things. Because failure in the first one was felt very public, and failure mm-hmm. with the second one was still... I maintained a lot of privacy around that. Um, but I think once I started to... Once I started to submit to agents, that's when, you know, I think a little bit of my ego and, um, and a lot more of my emotional energy went into, um, went, went into the whole thing. And when you were in your MFA program, you know, you get a lot of advice and, and uh, good advice, bad advice, and I'd love to hear some of that. But was the program also open to you being a crime writer or were they, you know, did you have to pretend it was going to be a literary novel with a crime in it? How did, how did, how did that, was it supportive of what you were trying to do? Oh, yeah, mostly. I mean, um I think with any MFA program, you want to look at who your instructors are and sort of what they're interested in. So, you know, obviously sometimes people have issues with genre fiction, but not everyone. Um, and so I, like with any, with any, if you're going to an MFA program, if anyone's listening to this is thinking going to, of going to an MFA program, just pay close attention to what the instructors like, because that's going to, that's going to dictate 
sort of what's in the course. And of course you right. can learn something from someone who, who likes something that you don't like, but, but if they actively hate what you're working on, uh, you know, that, that that's something to, I, I'd say about anyone, like you, you get a lot of feedback when, when you're a writer, you get a lot of feedback. Um, even I'm on my fifth novel now and I still get a lot of feedback. And I would say to any new writer, if you're getting feedback from someone, uh, that isn't edifying, it's not that the, it's not the, the feedback is not the feedback you need. Um, and, and you should look for someone else to get that feedback from. That's great advice. Um, when you, what was the best piece of advice, writing advice you ever got? Oh my goodness. What would my, the best piece of writing advice be? That is because I will tell you this while I try and think of something, I'll tell you this as a writer, you get advice all the time. Uh, people have all sorts of things that they tell you. And I always, I, I teach in an MFA program now. And I always, tell, I always tell my students, you get a lot of absolute advice. It's like, never do this and always do this. Never have, begin with a preface. Always write in the third person. And I always tell my students, if someone gives you uh, advice like that, that is absolute, always take the absolute verb in that sentence and replace it with consider. Consider don't starting with a preface. <laughs> Consider writing in the in the third person because there is no, there are no absolutes in writing. Um, but I would say the best piece of advice that I ever got um, about writing is to be resilient. Um, it is uh, writing. When you're starting out, there's a lot of waiting involved. You submit mm -hmm. to people for, you submit query letters to agents. Your agent submits manuscripts to editors. And there's just a lot of waiting involved. And so while you're waiting, always have, this is a two-parter, and always have something else that you're working on. Um, so don't don't hang out and like hope and hope, like, like, uh, depend on yourself to keep your writing career going forward. And you always learn. So like, even if your novel like happened to me, even if your first novel doesn't, and I'll, there's a punchline here. Um, even if your first <laughs> novel doesn't sell, you're always learning and becoming a better writer. So right. your second novel might sell, even if that first novel actually never sells. And here's the punchline. Uh, I got a contract for my, I had a contract for a, a book. So I had, had to write a second book. And um, I was still working. I was still the vice president of this company. I still had this enormous job. And so I thought, why don't I try dusting off that novel that didn't sell and see if I can turn that into something? So I, I had to, like, dig up this old computer to find the file. And I pulled, up the, I pulled up the manuscript, and I read about 10 pages. And I was like, do you know why this never sold? Because it's terrible. And, like, thank God it didn't sell because I wouldn't have wanted it out there. <laughs> did you find anything in that no in the it book was that... absolutely <laughs> horrendous it was terrible i don't know how i got the agent <laughs> so so the mystery of the world works in it was a place so that you saved yourself absolutely. from that being your, absolutely your debut into the world <laughs> it taught you how to write a novel though your first novel taught oh, you how to write a novel absolutely yeah <laughs> um so you mentioned like 2009 2010 you're sort of 
getting your um, process back into place and you wrote three-page scene with a character. Um, what is your process like? Is that how you start novels? Is you have this these ideas and, you know, are you a plotter? Are you a pantser? Like, what's your... Did you develop new skills through your MFA or, or, you know, did you always work the same way? Oh, my Lord. I, I just finished. I'm on my fifth novel right now. I just finished my fourth manuscript. And I have used a different process for every single one of them. <laughs> I, I'll tell you that. And um, so my first, your first novel is totally unique. Uh, because the you know the thing about a first a manuscript a first manuscript is no one's waiting for it which is a great thing actually it means that you can spend as much time as you need to get it right um, you can make it exactly what you want it to be and you're not you're not encumbered by some weird deadline that is that's forcing you to write something so my first novel was totally unique I tried a, a bunch of different things actually my uh, um, I, I took an entire storyline out of the novel because it was too complicated um, and then had to backfill to make the, the remaining story much more, um, much more lively, much better. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I actually took that storyline and spun it into my third novel, which was, which was awesome. Um, so my first novel was totally unique. My second novel, I still had the, the big, big job at the publisher. And so I had to be very disciplined because I could only work in the mornings and on the weekends there. So for that novel, I was very, um, I was very outline oriented. So, um, and I had to stick to a schedule. I just kind of had to make my, my deadlines on everything. Um, for my third novel, um, that one definitely came out of the writing process. Um, I sort of started with some, all, all of my novels so far have been exactly the same. They have four point of view characters. They, uh, rotate between the four characters and each of them tells a part of a braided story. Um, so with that one, what was interesting was I, I started, I didn't know who the four characters were going to be at the start. I knew who two of them were and then two others emerged out of the writing process. And then I'm going to tell you this, the, this fourth novel almost killed me. I turned it in, I turned it in last month. And Julie and I, I happen to know, had the same deadline. She made hers. I did not. And um, so it was like, I, I always do this thing where I track my words and like where I am with the novel on this spreadsheet. And so when I, when I proposed this novel to my editor, it was about a couple who run a, um, run a prep school in New Hampshire um, it turned into a novel. The next iteration was about four siblings, two brothers and two sisters who live in Boston. And one of them had just gotten out of jail and another was a therapist. Those were the two boys. And then there were two girls. The, the final novel, the boys were no longer in the novel. It was about the two girls. Ah. Like they had just gotten the heave ho. And I was like, why have I been so panicked about this novel? And then I went back and I looked at my spreadsheets to see where I was. I didn't give the two boys the heave ho until until January, and the thing was due in April. Wow. So I was just like constantly changing the storyline. So for my fourth novel, I was absolute absolutely a pantser because I had no idea where this thing was going to go. But the, the, this is a standalone too, so that you've got a. Is that right? It's not the beginning of a series, or is it no, the first? No, this is a standalone. So I read this series, uh, the Hester Thursby series. Hester Thursby is a, a is a uh, amateur sleuth, um, and she often works with a police uh, a police detective named Angela White. And so in this novel, 
which is in the Hester Thursby world because Angela White is a character in it. And then Hester wound up sneaking into the last act too. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But she's not the main character. She's only in like two scenes. I love that. I love that. And I didn't plan that when it was set in New Hampshire either. (laughs) So that's the magic of the creativity. I mean, it's a little frightening when you've got a deadline looming and you're... (laughs) You've got characters disappearing and you're changing things, and hopefully your editor is open to the fact that it's not the synopsis you sent him. But um, but that's also the magic of this. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can't get from here to there without going through the mess in the middle. <laughs> and it can be a mess. I... Um, I it sounds as though, though, you needed, you built the confidence to write this most recent novel from having written other novels. Like you, this would have probably panicked you 10 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. I I will say I was panicked in, in this one too, but, but not, not to the level that I probably would have. My second novel, I think was just the most challenging. And people often say this just because there was a deadline and I, uh, you know, you do learn, you know, like any skill, you learn as you go along. And um, I was still very much learning a, a lot of different things at that at that point. So that one was, again, I think being very regimented with that one was was by necessity. And you mentioned that you're teaching in an MFA program now. Do you find that teaching is also teaching you? Are you learning things as you're teaching? Oh, sure. You know, it's so interesting. I never write anything with the, there, you know, there are lots of structure. I'm not a structure. I'm not a structuralist as a lot of, like a lot of writers are, but um, I love to learn about different structures and different theories of structure. And so there's a, there's one that a lot of people use called the hero's journey and people will use star Wars as an example of the hero's journey. Luke Skywalker goes through a journey through star Wars and becomes the character that he is at the end. And it's a very different character from the beginning. And, um, I don't use the hero's journey in my novels, but uh, it's so interesting. A lot of my students do. And so I feel like I'm always learning a little bit more about that structure as I'm as I'm teaching these courses. Yeah, that's great. And there are different kinds of structures. I mean, that's a, that's um, which is also sort of freeing. But the fact that you write in four different points of view is such a huge accomplishment. I mean, that's that's a you don't make it easy on yourself. Is there something <laughs> about four points of view that just that's how you have to tell the story? Because that is not simple. It's at not, all. Well, I really love the puzzle of the mystery. And I love to use actually this novel had six points of view. Aye, aye, aye. Um, <laughs> so I love the puzzle of the mystery. And I love I always say the reader is like the for this book, the reader would be the seventh POV, but for most of my books, the reader would be the fifth point of view because it's really the reader who who sees all of the story. Like in my Hester Thursby novels, at the end of a Hester Thursby novel, even Hester Thursby doesn't know. She's the investigator. Even she doesn't know everything that happened, but you, the reader, do. Um, and there are always yeah. each of the four point of view characters always have secrets that they have retained all the way through to the end of the story, and figuring out how those secrets. How the, how the reader can both very much understand what those secrets are and and maybe other characters don't understand what those secrets are is really the fun part of it. I'm going to try, actually, I have to tell you, I'm going to try a single point of view for my next book, I think. One point of view, first person, a guy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you 
just like, <laughs> set off on the journey that you kind of. <laughs> well, I, I will look forward to checking in with you in a, you know, a year. And see I don't think that's going to actually happen, but that's what I'm going to try and do. So when I cut the boy, the two boys from this novel, one of them I'm really interested in. In fact, I, so the, um, these, the kids were all darlings. They were called the darlings. Um, and I wound up changing their last names at the end, right before I sent it to my, to my uh, editor, because I want to keep darling. I feel like if you use the last name darling, you've got to be purposeful with it. Yeah. And um, so I have this character, the one of the ones I cut from the novel, his name is Henry Darling. And he is a, um, he's a therapist. And two things, he, I, I kind of want to try and look a little bit into the future to where police policing goes and how they'll mm-hmm. be using therapists um more like as we're talking about how we're reforming the police departments um so uh that's one of the things i want to explore with him but the uh, he's like got this creepy side too he um and his name is henry darling um he meets with he, like his clientele is both he, he works with the police but his other clientele is a, a whole bunch of rich people and um he he considers him he, he always says that he goes to the largest uh, cocktail party in the world, and one of the things he loves to do is make connections between his uh, between his clients that they may not even know that the connections are there. Like he figures out whose whose husband is sleeping with whom and that kind of yeah. stuff, and he keeps this like um, matrix on his computer where he makes all these connections. And through that matrix, he discovers some some crime. I haven't figured out what the crime is. Oh, I love that. I look forward to that. Henry Darling is also a fabulous name. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So you've been, you started, you know, with your first agent and then you got another agent and, uh, you know, you had a series and now you're standalone. What surprised you about this publishing journey? You know, let's say since you got published. I mean, what, was it what you expected? Is it different? I mean, what... Um, you know, separating writing from publishing because it's two different, two different journeys. And I do think writers need to, uh, learn to celebrate the success of writing because publishing, a lot of it's out of their control. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do benefit. I mean, college publishing and trade publishing are very different, but they're also similar. And so I did benefit from having a long history of working in a publishing house. Um, and so I do, I, the thing I always tell new writers or any writers, um, publishing is a business and your mm-hmm. editor is beholden to his P&L. He has got to turn in a, a number to his boss um, that is in the black and not in the red. That is, any businessman has to do that. You know, they also deal in dreams. And so it's a different kind of business and they deal in your dreams. And so a really good editor, a really good publisher, both understands that they're dealing with dreams and understands that they have to deliver that number to their editor. And they're able to, like, there's some magic where they're able to balance that thing, those two things. Um, And as a writer, when you're talking to your editor, the more you can understand the pressures that that editor is under, right around money, around, and people don't want to talk about profit. They don't want to talk about, um, you know, having to turn a profit for the company, but that is really what it's about. And you're Mm -hmm. a piece of that profit and you want to be a piece of that profit because being a piece of that profit also benefits you as a, as a writer. So the more you can remember that, um, and the more you can be kind when you're talking to your editor and understanding when you're talking to your editor about the pressures that, that whoever you're working with is under, the better. 
That's such great advice and understand, uh, you know, help them be under, know how to market or how to position your book or, or understand that telling them it's the most unique book ever written is actually not helpful at all. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, and make, I mean, I just didn't do this, but making your deadlines so that their lives are easy. Like when they're asking for something they say it, they need it on Friday, just like do it. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, they need, they need marketing copy. They need help with whatever the things that they're uh, working on. I like my editor is they have done terrific covers for me and he's always asked for uh, feedback at the beginning and given me the, cover at the end and like I do know this when I see the cover at the end they it, it's already been through a lot of people the cover is the absolute most important thing that the editor has to has to do for your book so unless there's something seriously wrong with it he just wants me to say that it's good yeah <laughs> so <laughs> I'll tell you with my last book Hester Thursby they have this picture of this woman on the cover with this long flowing, like these beautiful flows of hair. And I was like, can you just give her a ponytail? Hester does not have long flowing, beautiful hair. (laughs) And he said, okay. You know, and that was like an easy change. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the kind of note. No, it's, it's, and they know what they're doing. I mean, that's absolutely. Yep. You know? Um, Yeah. You so interesting. Are you taking a break between the your book you just turned in and Henry Darling's book, or are you have you already like in finishing this last book? Did you say now I'm ready to work on Henry's? Like, do you give yourself breaks in between? Uh, I'm in an interesting phase right now because I had a I finished my third book and then I finished my third book in February of 2020, and um. Everything was completely berserk, and it took a while to get a contract for my new book. And so I had this, like, weird break in between. Um, it was only, like, three months, but I had this, like, incredible creative burst. And it was I think part of it was that I didn't have um, a contract or a deadline to worry about, but mm-hmm. I wrote this manuscript that I really like um, that is probably, like, 85% done. So I kind of want to see where I can, and it's totally different from anything I've done before. So I kind of want to see if I can take that anywhere. Um, and then I'll either do a new Hester Thursby or start it on the Henry Darling book. I haven't decided yet. I have an outline is, for a new Hester Thursby. Oh, and is it is the book that you wrote during that creative burst a crime novel? It is a crime novel. It is, I would say it is like Meg Wolitzer. Um, the Interestings paired with Donna Tart, The Secret History. Oh, so sunshine, happy story there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of, that's your jam anyway. <laughs> no, none of my, I mean, my novels are not happy books. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're wonderful books. <laughs> but you, uh, you you do you do dwell on or or work in the darker oh, yeah. side of they the go humans. into the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, tell me, you're the education liaison for Sisters in Crime. You serve on the national board, and let's just talk about Sisters in Crime a little bit and the importance of community. Do you talk to your students about 
that about finding other writers? Because we think it's so solitary, but in fact, you really need to meet other people. Yes. I actually have a unit in every semester. I have a unit for my MFA students where they have to research a they write in all different genres, so it depends on what genre yeah. they're writing in, but they have to research a conference or a writer's organization. It can be local or national, and then they have to report back on that um, that organization to the class. Um, and then I have them, I also pair them up and have them do some networking things with each other and really encourage them to um, to continue to continue the relationships with each other outside of the classroom. Uh, but networking is is really, it's like, no, like in any career, I mean, this isn't unique to writing, but in any career, networking is so important because it just helps you helps you find out what's happening uh, wherever, and it helps you it, it it exposes you to different opportunities that you wouldn't necessarily even know about unless you unless you did that kind of networking. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I here in here in Boston we have uh, um, we have an annual conference called the Crime Bank. <laughs> And I'm terrible at this. And like, so I didn't even take my own advice. I went to the crime bank for like five years and never spoke to a soul. Um, and, be, and I don't know why I did that. And finally, one year I submitted my work and Hallie Efron, who's a terrific uh, local writer, was my was the person who read it. And she's like, this is terrific. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I was just about to get, that was actually, I was at a low point with with the novel that sold, Little Comfort, my first novel. I was at a low point with that because I had gotten an agent at that point, but we'd had some trouble selling it uh, to a publisher. And that was the little boost I needed to sort of make it the, the, that final step because I sold the book maybe a couple months later, actually. And I was on the verge of, of you know, packing it, in, packing it in again. Yeah. So we, you know, somebody like Hallie telling you that you, they like your work, but also just being around other people who understand because you may have family who love you, but they don't understand this journey. So oh, having no. other people um, to understand what you're trying to do. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it is uh, maybe my partner understands, but I mean, writing a book is pretty solitary. It can be solitary. And so you want to look out, you want to look for people to reach out to. But like the when you're really on a deadline, I mean, the last month that I was right working on this last book, I slept maybe two hours a night and yeah. for a month. And it was, you know, like sleeping two hours a night is crazy making. And it's something you're yeah. doing all by yourself. Yeah. Well, and also you're teaching so that you're at the end of the semester at the yes. same time. So that's a lot. <laughs> it was, like Everything sort of converged in a way that wasn't good, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this is a great conversation and lots to, lots to think about and to talk about. And uh, thanks for being so honest about the journey that you've been on, because I think that's helpful to people, too. You're not... You know, it's not all throwing flowers on the path and sunshine and lollipops. <laughs> I mean, it's it's some work. There's some work, but there are lots of good rewards too. But just stick with it. That's that's my advice to you, right? New writers out there, stick with it. Yeah, yeah, and don't try to make it one thing that that's the only path you could take either. You've got to be fluid. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, um, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Edwin, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Julie. This was great. It's great. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. 
Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.